when in Rome, do as the Romans do. It means basically that you should adopt the, the customs and practices of the place you are visiting. It's often used with a, a shrug, might, might as well. One of my most bizarre when in Rome moments was when I was living in Peru as a, a short-term missionary. I was committed to eating whatever was set before me without complaint. And one of the speci- specialties of Peruvian cuisine, considered a delicacy, is known as cui. Not, not koi, the, the Japanese carp, cui. And I'm sorry for those who keep them as pets, but cui is, is known here as guinea pig. I, I only had the opportunity to, to eat it once, but there was a real hurdle in eating something that I normally think of as, as a household pet. When in Rome, well, only when in Rome. I didn't bring that custom back to me. No, no trips to Petco to buy dinner. That's, that's a parallel, though, to living the Christian life. There's a metaphor in the Bible of living in a foreign land to describe the Christian life and the temptation to adopt its practices. For example, the Apostle Peter exhorts Christians to live as sojourners. That, that, that is, we are in a temporary stay in a, a foreign land, not yet at home. We are in the world, but not of it. There is, as I said, a pressure, though, to, to live as the Romans do, to, to adopt or to return to the, the customs and practices of the pagan land, this present world. We, as Christians, are, are called to live in a world that we do not belong to, that is strange to us and, and we are strangers to But the Bible is not talking about food, nor even styles of dress or or language. Peter rather goes on after calling us to to live as sojourners, to to urge us to abstain from not eating guinea pig, no, no, to abstain from the passions of the sinful flesh, to keep our conduct honorable. The Bible is calling us as sojourners, to no longer indulge in the sins of this foreign land, and rather to live in the true righteousness of the land we look forward to. Now, in our passage this morning, the nation of Israel arrives in a foreign land. In the midst of famine, with God's direction, the fledgling nation settles in the land of Egypt. But their, their stay in Egypt is, is only meant to be temporary. Not only will we see Jacob call himself sojourner, but he, in this passage, looks forward to the day when, when his nation, the nation of Israel, will return to the land of his, his fathers. When in Egypt, they are not to do as the Egyptians do. They are to be like, for example, Joseph who adopted the Egyptians' dress and language, but not their gods. Our passage this morning, brothers and sisters, Genesis 46, 28 through 47, 31, 
the settled brothers, and the sovereign God. So if you would, please open your Bibles with me. Genesis 46, starting in verse 28. We're going to read the the second half of Genesis 46 and all of 47. After I, I read the passage for us, I will frequently refer back to specific verses. So I would encourage you to keep, keep that Bible open in your lap. Genesis 46, 28 to 47, 31, the settled brothers and the sovereign God. We are going to see, I hope, <clears throat> that our sovereign God settles sojourners while keeping them separate and, and prosperous. But be, before I read, would you please pray with me once more for, for God's help in our hearing and for the proclamation of his word. Please, please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we, we know that your word is given not, not so that we might know facts, but that we might know joy that we might know joy incarnate in your Son, and knowing Him, know you, God our Father. Lord, we pray this morning that you would, you would shed our temptation to, to read just black and white letters on a page, and rather, Lord, to see through them the reality of who you are and your gracious dealings with your people. Lord, to redeem us from our sins, to make us a people unto yourselves, Lord, for our eternal good and for your eternal glory. For this we can only do by the grace of your Spirit with us now. So, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. In the name of Christ, we pray this. Amen. Read with me Genesis 46, starting in verse 28. He that is Jacob, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show him to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die. Since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and, and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my, bro- excuse me, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and, and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. 
And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of our livestock are all my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that the Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh. And forthwith shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years.
And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his sons, his son Joseph, and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. The word of the Lord. In case it's not clear, Israel didn't die there. There's still more left for Jacob in the chapters to come. But as is always helpful, it's good to have the, the main argument in front of us at the start. What's the, what's the main idea of this, this section of Scripture, these 38 verses? Well, it might be this, that our sovereign God settles sojourners while keeping them separate and prosperous. Our sovereign God settles sojourners while keeping them separate and prosperous. After Jacob's reunion with Joseph, the passage really is framed with the word settled. So in chapter 47, 6 and 11, and then in the end, in in verse 27, it uses some version of the phrase settled in the land of Egypt. So this passage is about Israel settling in the land of Egypt, but not, you notice, to become a part of Egypt They receive a self-contained possession, distinct from the rest of Egypt, to remain ready to return when the time comes to Canaan. Our sovereign God settles sojourners while keeping them separate and prosperous. We're going to walk through this passage in three points and then conclude with two topics of application. So our outline this morning, first, settled separate. That in 46.28 all the way down through 47.6, settled separate. Second, in that, that little middle section, chapter 47, 7 through 10, blessings returned. Number two, blessings returned. And finally, pronounced prosperity. 47.11 all the way through 31, pronounced prosperity. And, and though this narrative seems very distant from our experience, I pray that we at the end can, can draw out a pair of lessons for us as we live the, the same life of faith in the same God as Jacob and his family were called to. So let's start back in chapter 46, 28, and our first point, settled separate. A little context will help. We're in a section of Genesis since chapter 43 where there are no, no breaks in the story. It's, it's all continuous. Last week, Joseph sent loads of food and wagons with his brothers back to Canaan to fetch his father and all their families to bring them back to Egypt. You might remember there in chapter 46, for the first time in some 30 years, God spoke to Jacob telling him to to go, that that God will be with him and will bring him up out of the land of Egypt again. And that in Egypt, God will continue to fulfill his promise to make of him a a great nation. This is a a big move. His, His grandfather, Abram, had been called into the promised land, promised to receive it all, and Jacob is now leaving it, but only for a time. At the 
The end of the section we read last week in 46, Moses notes the move by, by recording all the sons of Israel who made the journey into Egypt. And so our passage begins in verse 28 with their arrival in the land of Egypt. And the prologue there in verses 28 through 30 is, is where Joseph and Jacob meet. So verse 28, the, the people come to the land of Goshen. It's important to mention that the Goshen is a part of Egypt, but it's, it's in the east, closer to the land of Canaan and, and well-suited for, for grazing. In verse 29, Joseph prepares to, to set out to meet his father in Goshen in his impressive chariot. But when he meets them, their, their embrace is as intimate as we can imagine. Joseph, it says, falling on his neck and weeping on it for a good while. They've now been apart for 22 years. Jacob, or sorry, Joseph was 17. When he left his father, he is now 39. Since they've been apart for those 22 years, Jacob has, has been looking ahead to his death in, in mourning. Way back in, in chapter 37, he concluded that, that he would go down to death in mourning for his son. It's a stark contrast to his outlook in verse 30. It's, it's reversed. He anticipates now his death with joy because he has seen the face of his son. Well, now that they're reunited, we have the, the matter of arranging their settlement in Goshen with Pharaoh. But, but before we get to that, I think it's especially to note in passing how good news can change our outlook on death. And this is especially important for our church to consider together in the light of our past 36 hours. All people will die. Everybody in this room will, will one day die. We, we know that. But sometimes its arrival catches us off guard. Jacob here does not know the hour of his death, but he is ready, he says in verse 30, now let me die because of the joy that he now lives with. You don't know the hour of your death. Our friend Clint could not have known the hour of his death. But he was ready because of the joy of good news. The good news of a, a living and reigning son, much like Jacob experienced here, prepares every Christian to arrive at death when it arrives with joy. We can be ready now to depart this world in peace because we have received good news. But to get to the subject of, of this narrative, arranging for Israel to settle in, in Goshen. And, and Joseph, with, with wisdom given by God here, has a plan. That, that plan starts in verse 31. It goes through 34, and they execute it perfectly in chapter 47, verses 1 through 6. So that the plan, starting in verse 31, is for Joseph to go to Pharaoh and announce that, that his family has arrived. And, 
in verse 32 to explain that his family are, are shepherds and they brought their flocks. So, in verses 33 and 34, when Pharaoh, he prompts them, when Pharaoh asks you your occupation, tell him that you're shepherds and not just you, but your father's. And your father's father. We know this. You remember that that Jacob kept Laban's flocks. Abraham had had so many flocks that he had to separate from his nephew to find enough grazing land. This is simply the truth. So why why is Joseph insisting on it? Well, look again at the second half of verse 34, so that in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for because shepherd, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians, or in the NIV, shepherds are detestable to Egyptians. For whatever reason, lost to history, the people of the land detested shepherds. So instead of forsaking their shepherding ways in order to be accepted with the Egyptians, Joseph instructs them to embrace their shepherd keeping in order to remain separate from the Egyptians. That's his stated purpose. It's it's clear for us right there in verse 34. At my daughter's school, there's a a large placard on the kitchen door, a big red X printed over the words, food cross-contamination. It's there to remind the kitchen staff, because of food allergies, they can't contaminate one food with another. It would be dangerous to the children. I think that's something of what verse 34 means. It's a a big red X printed over the words national cross-contamination. To be clear, Joseph's plan is not about ethnicity. Rather, during this period, God has promised to make Israel into a great nation, and that nation would be a blessing to all nations to blend That nation, Israel, into oblivion would be to abandon God's promise to bring blessing to all nations. So this is what they do. Chapter 47, verse 1, Joseph returns to Pharaoh, announces his brother's arrival with the flocks. He takes a few of his brothers and and they are asked their occupation. Verse 3, shepherds. And they make their request to Pharaoh to to dwell in the land of Goshen to pasture their flocks. Pharaoh's reply is in verse 6. Yes, settle in Goshen, what he calls the best of the land. And and in fact, even put my livestock in the charge of the able among them. They're not getting here the land that no one else wanted. They're getting prime real estate. Evidently, even in the midst of famine, still able to to feed their flocks. And so it is arranged according to Joseph's plan. Israel settled in a land that will sustain them during the famine and sustain them as a distinct nation. This is not their home. They are not to identify with the, excuse me, Egyptians when in Egypt, to do as the Egyptians do. 
And I hope you already feel that this has rich application to us today as God's people, as sojourners in this world, but there is more that we have to draw out first. So our second point, number two, blessings returned. That in the four verses starting in verse seven, blessings returned. This short central scene, only four verses, introduces Jacob, Israel, to to Pharaoh. So Jacob here in verse 7 brings his his father in. I don't know what Jacob looks like in your imagination, but the text implies that Joseph needs to prop him up, that, that he can't stand without help. Now, with that picture in mind, you might be tricked into thinking that someone so feeble can't do anything for anyone. But the scene begins there at the end of verse 7. Jacob held up before Pharaoh with Jacob blessing the king. I'd assume it would be the other way around. This is, after all, his court in his land where he has all the resources and power And Jacob is coming to him as an old sojourner with a small nomadic nation that was on the brink of extinction. But no, it says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Naturally, at the sight, Pharaoh inquires of his age. And at this point, it says that that Jacob is 130 years old. But his reply might seem a bit depressing, a bit negative. In verse 9, he talks about how few and and evil his years have been. I know some Christians have been taught when asked how they're doing to always answer better than I deserve, better than I deserve. This seems like the opposite. Well, first of all, to us, 130 years might seem monumental, but it's quite shorter than, quite a bit shorter than his, his father Isaac at 180 years and his grandfather Abraham at 175 years. His years are few, relatively. And consider all the evil of his days. He was literally born fighting with his brother. His parents played favorites from his youth. He cheated and stole the blessing from his brother, who then made it his aim to murder him. So Jacob lived for decades on the run, where he was tricked on his wedding night into marrying the sister of the girl that he loved. He labored there for decades and was cheated out of his wages, even when he arranged a deal to take only a small fraction of the herds as payment. His uncle Laban stole all those out from under him. That's not to mention the rivalry of his wives, the the early death of his favorite wife, and his sons scheming to murder his favorite son, but instead just lying to him about it for 22 years. Yes, his days have been evil. So when he identifies himself here as As a sojourner, again, verse 9, he is saying more than just neither Canaan nor Egypt were home. He is pointing out that the evil 
of this fallen world is a reminder that nowhere here is our home. Hebrews 11, later we'll talk of of all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, living in tents because they were looking forward to a real heavenly home. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10 read, By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for... He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Jacob was a sojourner looking forward to a real heavenly home. And still, this weak man, without a home, blesses Pharaoh. Moses repeats it there in in verse 10. Jacob blesses him as he comes and as he he goes. It was likely some words spoken over Pharaoh as a a prayer, a prayer that God, the God of Abraham and Isaac, would bless Pharaoh and the land of Egypt. And this is, in fact, exactly what, what God has promised. We see again in our study of the book of Genesis how God is faithful to his promise to Abraham. God had promised, you will remember, to bless those who bless Abraham and his line. So here, as Pharaoh blesses Israel with the best of the land in Goshen, Pharaoh himself receives a blessing, this from Jacob. And it's not just words spoken like a a bless you after a sneeze. No, Egypt really is blessed through the line of Abraham in Jacob. That's the the theme of blessing that continues through the rest of the narrative. And our our third point, pronounced prosperity. Pronounced prosperity. Verses 11 and 12 are really just summary statements underlining the main theme of them being settled and their provision through Joseph. There it calls their land actually a possession in the land, land that is actually theirs, more than even that they had in, in Canaan, and all this given by, by Pharaoh. Joseph, verse 12, out of the storehouses of Egypt, provides for all his family. They will be preserved through the famine. But this blessing is not just for, for Jacob's family. This blessing extends to the nation of Egypt as well. That's really the message of verses 13 and and following, how Joseph, the Hebrew governor, blesses the entire nation of Egypt through the rest of the famine. Maybe you thought when we read that that Joseph was being harsh in in buying up all the land and, and people of Egypt. Since we often associate slavery with its practice In the transatlantic slave trade, we think of involuntary man-stealing, of of a system rooted in racism and and brutal abuse. But that's that's not what's happening here in chapter 47. This isn't even like the later servitude that Egypt forces Israel into, something that Exodus chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 calls ruthless oppression. No, there are a few key interpretive signs here that, that what is happening is actually merciful. 
First, look again with me at verse 19. Verse 19, the people of Egypt say, Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us in our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. This suggestion comes from the Egyptians themselves. This is, this is their idea. And very clearly in verse 25, let's read that again. And they, that is the Egyptians, said, you have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. They there celebrate Joseph as, as the one who saves their lives. They joyfully offer themselves to live as servants to Pharaoh. What happens here is, is their ancient equivalent to a social safety net. And in fact, their, their situation in the end, their condition in the end is as it was in the years of plenty. You'll note in verse 24 that they give, again, one-fifth to Pharaoh. That's what they had given in the years of plenty. And honestly, that's, that's even better than a, a modern tax rate in many situations. But even more than that, this is in fact almost exactly the practice given by God to Israel in Leviticus 25. That when in poverty, the ability to become an indentured servant who will become free in the year of Jubilee, a a merciful provision for their protection. We read in Leviticus 25, 39 and 40, if your brother becomes poor beside you, and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. So I think the point of this narrative is to show that blessing is coming to Egypt through Joseph, so that they are, in their own words, kept alive. They even go as far as to adopt this statute as as permanent. Look in verse 26. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day. That's Moses writing hundreds of years later that it is still practiced in Egypt. This is a wise and good law reflected even in the statutes of Israel. Of course, we have to say that, that the presence of poverty a situation of famine where they need to sell themselves is a result of the fall. There is no need of this law in in Eden, and there will be no need of this law in the new heavens and the new earth. It's also important to note that this is not a mandate for our society. Israel lived in a unique covenant with God. When they later received this law in Leviticus They were living in a particular relationship with God. God. Christians are in a a different era of God's plan. We do not have divine mandates for our civil laws in the same way. So the point for us of this narrative is not just how Israel brought blessing to Egypt. It's also to compare Egypt to its small and weak enclave Israel. Compare, even in the mercy of Egypt kept alive, they are losing their land. But who isn't? 
Israel, on the other hand, in verse 27, gained possessions in it. They don't sell their land back to Pharaoh. The the closest parallel to the nation of Israel in Egypt would be the priests, who alone, it says, did not have to sell their land to Pharaoh. But they lived on a fixed allowance, it says, according to verse 21. That's the same situation that Israel is in, living on a fixed allowance from Joseph. I can imagine the Israelites reading this narrative all those years later, nudging one another. That's right, we also are priests of the land. Isn't that what what God told us in the Exodus? Exodus 19.6, God speaking to Israel when they first come into Sinai after being redeemed from Egypt. He says to them, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I think we have an early picture of that. Israel being treated as the priests of the land. But I want to note something very important in verse 27. Moses says something here so important. I would tell you in your Bibles if you do this to underline it. But I don't think that would be pronounced enough. Maybe highlight it in your brightest color. If you could put a metaphorical siren and flashing lights on these six words in English. Verse 27, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. I hope you recognize those words. Some combination of these words have shown up more than a dozen times in Genesis. You might recognize them as the first commandment given by God to mankind, Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply. God repeated the command to Noah. He turned it into a promise to Abraham and his descendants. I will make you fruitful. Isaac blessed Jacob with these words. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. And this is the only time of the dozen that it is not in the form of a command or promise. It is not do this. It is not I will do this. It is at last a statement of fact. They were fruitful and did multiply greatly. What God has promised, He is doing. His plans have literally been in the works from the beginning of mankind to fill the earth with people who reflect His character. And at times in the story, it has seemed at at great peril. But God has been relentlessly faithful to accomplish what He has commanded and promised. It is because of God's power and grace given to Noah and to Abraham and and now Jacob that his promise at last is coming to pass. And they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. We were reminded of this in our scripture reading from, from Hebrews 6 where Hebrews quotes one of those early references to the promise to multiply Abraham in Genesis 22 17. There in Genesis 22, God adds to that promise an oath to show the unchangeable character of his purposes. 
And that, Hebrews says, so that we, so that we who have fled to God for refuge have strong encouragement to hold fast to our hope. Since God's purposes cannot change, He will fulfill all that He promises. And with these promises, in the words of 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. For Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, promises lead to holy living. And, and that brings us this morning to our two topics to draw out from this this narrative of application as we today live faithfully in a foreign land. So our two topics of application this morning, first, be a distinct people. Be a distinct people. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word holy, but a lot of people associate it with someone who's stuffy, with a holier-than-thou attitude. But the, the word holy simply means set apart. The Bible calls on us to be a distinct people, a people set apart. In the passage that we're studying this morning, Israel is, is literally physically apart from Egypt. They were a distinct people by geography. But that's no longer the case with God's people. God's people no longer live in a specific place. We're spread across all of the globe in, in every community. The way now to be a, a holy and distinct people is not by our, our address, but by our, our conduct. You know, you can think of modern examples of this. If you go into the heart of Brooklyn, you will find a distinct people by their address and their dress the Hasidic Jews. The same could be said of, of the Amish in Lancaster County. That is not the distinct life we as Christians are called by the Bible to live. We live on the same street as the Egyptians and might dress very much like them. No, we live a distinct life by our conduct. We are to be set apart for God, we are to live lives completely consecrated or, or dedicated to God. We no longer belong to ourselves, but, but by redemption are His property. We willingly offer ourselves to this King. We live in this world, but not of this world. We are of God. It is as Jesus prays in John 17, 14 and following. You can follow along on the screen behind me. He, he prays to his Father, I have given them, that is the people God have, has given to Christ, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for they, their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
Christians, Jesus prays not that you would be taken out of the world, but that you would be kept from the evil one, that you would be sanctified or set apart by God's word. But notice, Jesus then says he sends us out into the world. You might know that that familiar Christian phrase, in but not of. Christians are in the world but not of. And that's, that's true, but it, it can make it seem like our mission is simply in life to not be of the world. Our mission, to be in but not of. Well, yes, we are to be distinct from the world and are sent into the world as a witness. So that phrase needs a, a second half. In but not of. Not of, but sent into. Brothers and sisters, you are called to live a distinct life, separated from the sin of your past and the sin of our world. The grace that saves us is the same grace that that changes us to be like Christ who says of himself, I am not of this world. But he who is not of this world was sent into this world to be a witness. And so he sends us who are not of this world into the world as a witness. You are not meant to fit in here. You are just a sojourner passing through. You have been made a a citizen of another kingdom, a kingdom of heaven. It's something like, imagine, that you were one of those traveling during the ice storm that brought 95 to a halt on January 3rd. You were forced to take refuge in a cheap hotel. You don't, in that hotel, complain about the color scheme of the room or head to the the local store to replace the shower curtain and, and drapes. No, you remember that you are only going to be here for a night or two. You can put up with almost anything for a little while, for a couple of nights, knowing that soon you will be on your way back home. Don't make your hotel your home. Or to use the the language of Genesis 46, embrace being a shepherd in Egypt. Embrace those things that, that actually make you detestable to the world. Did you hear Jesus pray that? The world has hated them Because they are not of this world. Christ calls you to live with a a whole different set of values. You live for a different king, not the Pharaoh of this world. This world and its values are fading away, they will soon be all forgotten. Let's, Let's start here. One of the most valuable things that you have is your time. Are you spending your time just like the world is? If I looked at the 168 hours of your week, I imagine that I would see that you live in this world. You spend many of them asleep, just like everyone else. But are you not of the world? Are you, for example, spending significant time being sanctified in God's Word? Not just on Sundays, but but every day. Are you distinct enough to value the riches of Scripture? 
Are you spending time with other distinct people to encourage them and be encouraged Monday through Saturday? Are you spending time like Christ did, who who said of himself that he is not of this world, by serving those in need around you? By making intentional efforts to spend your time with people who do not know Christ so that you might be a witness to them. The way Christians are to be a holy and distinct people now is not by our address, but by our conduct. Be a distinct people. But we have one more application to look at from this passage Our second application this morning, look to Christ for blessing. Look to Christ for blessing. You you know we had to get here. All of the Bible is about Jesus, no less this passage. The center of this passage, not only literally the the middle verses, but, but a central theme is that blessing comes from God. Where do you go for your blessing? Put yourself in that that throne room, in that middle scene, that you see the the frail and poor Jacob next to the, the powerful and rich Pharaoh. Where would you go for blessing? Is it the one with all the things of this world or the one without but with God? How do you consider yourself blessed? With a good paycheck, a large house, a growing family, a sleek car, a clean bill of health. You know, when we read this passage, we are not the Jacob of the story. We should put ourselves in the shoes of Jacob's family. Even though it means living apart from the riches of Egypt, the text calls us to attach ourselves to Jacob and his line. And his family, because that is where blessing is found. Or maybe this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you should put yourselves in the shoes of one of the Egyptians. You need to take a trip out of Egypt and into Goshen to find the true source of blessing. It is not in Pharaoh. My point is that we far too often look to the wrong places for blessings. The world, Egypt, our world, has its own definition of blessing. And advertisers every day try to sell you their definition in pursuit of their definition, riches. Friends, this text is a clear reminder that the blessing is only found in Jacob. In Jacob's line, the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. We can go to a different throne room where Jesus too looked weak next to the kings of this world. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and Herod, it appeared that he had little to offer. When the world beat him, he too needed to be lifted up to stand. His years were also few and evil, cut off only in his 30s after great suffering. But it is in this weak 
and rejected Savior that the only true blessings are found. He came to suffer the punishments that we deserve for our sins. On the cross, he took upon himself the guilt of all those who would trust in him. He was condemned in our place so that by faith in his sufficient sacrifice, we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled with our heavenly Father. God then raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of majesty in heaven so that that from his current reign he can pour all blessings on those who are his by faith. And we now have the hope that though we sojourn in a world that, that is not our home, he will one day bring us back to that world. That is, I hope you see, the same faith that Jacob had. Did you notice that at the end of our our passage, that his outlook on on death was filled with faith? In verses 29 through 31, he makes Joseph promise to swear to me to bring up my bones, to reside with my father and his father in our burial plot in Canaan. He remembers God's promise on his way down to Egypt. God had said, I myself will go down with you and I will bring you up again. Though it will be many years before they are brought up out of Egypt, Jacob believes in his unchangeable character of God's purposes. So he wants his bones deposited back in Canaan where he knows that his family will one day dwell permanently. That's a parable for our life, brothers and sisters. We too are to look past our death to our eventual home. We too are almost home. Even if our lives here are marked by toil and danger, we are headed to a land, a a new heavens and a new earth where not a tear shall fall. Jesus has promised to take us there, to come a second time to renew all of creation And for those who are His by faith, who have lived distinct lives, our sojourning will be over. We will be home. On that day, our sovereign God will settle His sojourning people forever. So when in Egypt, in this world, live like someone who belongs in another world. Because we're almost there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you our praise today that you have given us this great encouragement for our hearts, Lord, that you are faithful to your promises. Lord, that even now as we live as as strangers, as exiles in a, a strange land, Lord, that you have given us every grace to live separate, distinct, holy lives and sent into this world sanctified by your word that we might be witness to the world that passes away. Lord, that along with us they might receive the gift of eternal life in a home forever. Lord, we pray that you would haste that day. Lord, that you would bring us home soon where we will dwell in our home forever. Lord, we place our hope in that this morning and pray that it would carry us through our week living as citizens of that land.
In Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we will have a a chance to respond to God's word in in worship through song in in just a moment, but I would invite you to spend a moment in, in silent reflection considering the truths of what we have heard today and considering particularly how you are called to live as a sojourner living distinct lives in a foreign land. Please observe a a moment of silence.